for a day or two. Fasting for weight control was something I learned from falconry. You know, if a bird was over flight weight, not hungry enough to come to me when I offered food, it didn't fly that day, and it didn't get anything to eat. Well, I figured that if keeping a close check on weight and going without food if overweight worked for my birds, it would work for me. And it used to. I don't know if age has anything to do with it, but I have found that if I skip a meal now, I tend to get lightheaded, especially when coming out of the hot tub after working out. (laughs) So I no longer fast as a physical discipline. But when I did, it was no big deal for me to go from feasting to fasting. But for some, fasting is a big deal. And they see it as more than just a physical discipline. They see it as a spiritual discipline. You know, those who view Bible reading and prayer as spiritual disciplines, a concept I don't fully embrace, they almost always include fasting as a spiritual discipline that Christians should practice. They believe that fasting was ordained by God, and since it was practiced in both the Old and the New Testaments, it should be practiced today. The supposed benefits of fasting generally include a sharpened awareness of dependence on God, a clear focus in prayer, and a sense of accomplishment in putting spiritual needs ahead of physical needs. Some would even go so far as to question your level of religious commitment if you don't fast. And that was the unspoken accusation when Jesus was asked why his disciples didn't fast. We come to our third why from Mark 2 this morning. The second why had to do with feasting. Why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? The third why had to do with fasting. When it was intimated that Jesus and his disciples should have been fasting instead of feasting. We're in Mark chapter 2, ready for verse 18. And John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Well, maybe we ought to start with just the first part of that question. Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? Why did they fast? Where did they get the idea? In the first place, well, anyone who's read the Old Testament knows fasting was practiced in the Old Testament. But maybe we ought to ask who started it and why was it practiced in the Old Testament? Now, most would suggest that fasting was God's idea, and it may have been. In Leviticus 16.29, when giving instructions for observing the Day of Atonement, God said, In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work. 
He goes on in verse 31 to say, It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, that you may humble your souls. Now the Jews interpreted the phrase, humble your souls, to mean fasting. And it it may have. But God did not actually say fast. And he could have. You know, there are obviously other ways one can humble his soul before God. But humble your souls is as close as we can come to a command from God to fast. And even if it did mean fast, fasting was only required of the Jews one day a year on the Day of Atonement. So why did the Pharisees fast twice a week, every Monday and every Thursday, from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. You know, like Muslims during Ramadan, they only fasted during daylight hours. They ate a big breakfast before the sun came up and then feasted after the sun went down. But they fasted religiously every Monday and Thursday for 12 hours. So again we asked, Where did such fasting come from? Well, not surprisingly, fasting may have come into existence spontaneously as a a natural response to sorrow. You know, in the book of Judges, we're told that the soldiers of Israel fasted all day after losing 22,000 men trying to put down a civil war against the tribe of Benjamin. And another 18,000 a day later. And that's the first account of an actual fast in the Bible. Now, Moses did go without food and water for 40 days before that, when he was, you know, receiving the law on Mount Sinai. But he was in direct contact with God during that time. And God must have met his physical needs because no one, can go 40 days without water, okay? The same was true for Elijah. When he went 40 days without food while traveling to Sinai, or Mount Horeb, as it was also called, before starting his journey, he had been given a bread cake and a jar of water by an angel, and it was in the strength of that food he was able to go 40 days and 40 nights. And when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted for 40 days, he too went without food. But as we've already noted, angels were ministering to him. So the so-called 40-day fasts of the Bible really weren't fasts. They were special occasions when God met the physical needs of special men in special circumstances. They were not voluntary spiritual disciplines we should try to emulate. The first real fast recorded in Scripture took place after a major defeat in battle, as we noted, and it was a natural response to sorrow. The next recorded fast took place after Samuel called upon the nation of Israel to repent of their sins and to remove idols and foreign gods from the land. They gathered at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, 
and fasted, crying out, We have sinned against the Lord. In doing so, fasting became an expression of sorrow for sin. David then took fasting to the next level. When Nathan told him that the child born to Bathsheba, as a result of his sin, would die, David fasted. Not only because of sorrow and as an act of repentance, but because he thought God might see it as an act of repentance and change his mind. So David changed fasting from a natural expression of sorrow into an attempt to make one's voice heard in heaven, a way to get God's attention. And before long, not only were individuals practicing it, but whole cities and nations were fasting as a sign of repentance and in an attempt to get God to help them or to change his mind. And God did respond to fasting when it was a sincere expression of the heart. He spared Nineveh because the whole city repented and fasted. You know, Isaiah had made it clear that if fasting wasn't a true expression of repentance, it was a useless gesture, but when done for the right reasons, it was acceptable to God. And as a result, fasting became a very important part of Jewish life. And by Jesus' day, faithful Jews fasted twice a week. And like Anna, the aged prophetess who gave thanks to God when the infant Jesus was presented in the temple, some served night and day in the temple with fastings and prayers. I'm not sure what that meant, but that's how it's recorded. Fasting had become a sign of devotion to God. And it was expected that anyone who was religious would fast. That's why the disciples of John and the Pharisees were shocked that Jesus' disciples didn't fast. They couldn't understand why they were feasting instead of fasting. Let's read on. And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom do not fast, do they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, even the Pharisees gave up fasting when attending a wedding feast. There was actually a rabbinic law that stated all in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy. And fasting at a wedding reception would certainly lessen joy. The Pharisees understood that. But they may not have understood that Jesus was referring to himself as the bridegroom. And they were apparently afraid to ask him why he didn't fast because he simply intimates that his disciples didn't fast because he was with them. Obviously, those who are with the Son of God don't need to fast to get God's attention. 
They are in fellowship with him. They are enjoying his presence. They are celebrating with him. Fasting would be out of place with the Son of God. We should also note that Jesus never taught fasting, nor did he encourage it, but he did speak of it. In the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, he pictured the Pharisee as piously patting himself on the back for fasting twice a week. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he addressed the hypocrisy of those who fast to be seen by men. He acknowledged the fact that Jews did fast by saying, whenever you fast and when you fast, but he never told them to fast. He simply said, when you do it, do it right if you expect God to notice. And unless you ignore the fact that angels ministered to him during the 40 days he went without food in the wilderness, there is no record of Jesus ever fasting. But Jesus was known for feasting. In fact, he was called a gluttonous man and a drunkard because he came eating and drinking. And when opportune moments came to declare a fast, he let them pass and miraculously provided feasts for thousands instead, feeding 5,000 on one occasion and 4,000 on another. Those would have been perfect opportunities to say, Let's focus on the things of God and forget about eating. But he didn't. Even the night he knew he would be betrayed, he feasted with his disciples. He didn't say, let's fast to prepare ourselves spiritually for what's ahead. As long as the bridegroom is present, the attendants, the friends of the bridegroom, don't fast. However, he did say when he'd be taken away from them, they would fast in that day. But what day is that? Well, some would suggest that day is today, that he's no longer with us, so we should be fasting. But that's ridiculous. Just before he ascended into heaven, Jesus said, And lo, I am, what? With you always. Even to the end of the age. The bridegroom is still with us. So what was he referring to when he spoke about being taken from his followers? Well, I'm convinced he was talking about his three days in the tomb. The period of time between the crucifixion and the resurrection would be a time for fasting, for heart-wrenching expressions of deep sorrow. But that day is over. So what should we be doing today? Feasting or fasting? Let's read on. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh 
wineskins. Now, what does that have to do with fasting? Everything. Fasting was a part of the old garment. As we've seen, fasting probably didn't originate with God, but it had become a very important part of the old religious garment. To now take Jesus and try to sew him to the old garment would be as foolish as trying to sew a patch of unshrunk cloth to an old garment that had been laundered many times. The first time the patched garment would be laundered, the patch would shrink up and pull away, making the whole worse. Some things just aren't compatible. And to try to sew them together is foolish. And to pour new wine into an old, hard, brittle wineskin that can't expand as the wine ferments will result in the loss of both the wine and the wineskin. You cannot take old forms of legalistic religious practice and fill them with new life. You can't take a vibrant, exciting, growing relationship with the Son of God and express it in ways that were intended to make a distant God pay attention. Now, old practices die hard, and we do find Christians fasting twice in the book of Acts. Once when Paul and Barnabas were set apart as missionaries, and then when elders were appointed for the churches of Asia Minor. But that was apparently done more out of Jewish tradition than anything else, and Paul never mentions fasting when giving Timothy and Titus instructions about the selection of elders and deacons. And fasting did make it further into the early church. And some translations of the New Testament even insert fasting into the text. Following some lesser manuscripts, the King James translation includes fasting in Matthew 17.21 and Mark 9.29, and have Jesus saying the demon the disciples couldn't cast out could only come out by prayer and fasting. It also adds in Acts 10.30 that Cornelius had been fasting And in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, fasting is included with prayer as a reason for a short period of abstinence from marital relations. That's it. But the oldest and best manuscripts do not have fasting in any of those places. It's just not there in the best texts. Now, it certainly appears to be Religious fasting may seem like something good to do, and it may be of benefit to some. But feasting is more compatible with the gospel than fasting. Paul did tell us, however, in Romans 14, 17, that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So however you choose to express your joy in the Holy Spirit, do it 
from a sincere heart, and God will bless you for it. Having said that, I do want to invite you to a spiritual feast and celebrate the presence of Jesus. The hymn says, come, feast upon the love of God and drink everlasting life. Hear the invitation, come whosoever will. Again, there are many things that are being taught in the religious communities today that that make us question whether we're doing the right thing or not and whether there's something missing from our walk with Christ. And there may be. But don't let someone guilt you into doing something that really has no foundation in Scripture, no command from God, and in many ways is a denial of the fact that Jesus is with us here and now. And he's invited us to feast with him now and promised to feast with us again when we see him in heaven. So feel free to celebrate your love for Christ and feast on the word of God. Let's stand.